Welcome to Risk Roundup. While facial recognition technology has been advancing over the years, what is different now is the high-speed processing capability and the ability to use artificial intelligence to identify any single individual with much greater accuracy from an enormous pool of diverse possibilities. Although facial recognition technology has been traditionally associated with the surveillance and security sector, over the years, there is active expansion of the technology into many different components of a nation. As a result, it fundamentally changes the way we do many things across nations, its government industries, organizations, and academia. Furthermore, as computer vision continues to get better over the coming months and years, and the technology's ability to determine any individual's exact, accurate physical, mental, and emotional state, we will likely see rapid increase in implementation of facial recognition technology in not only humans, but also on machines and much more. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome Brenda Leong to Risk Roundup. Brenda is the Senior Counsel and Director of Strategy with Future of Privacy Forum based in the United States. Welcome, Brenda. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me today. Wonderful, Brenda. So due to rapid advances in artificial intelligence-driven facial recognition technology and its rapid acceptance and adoption, it has become important to understand the scale of changes that are on its way. But before we go there, let us talk about the advances in technology briefly that has made facial recognition system possible. What technical foundations has led to this current state of facial recognition technology from your assessment? So the technical foundations, as you referenced, are the increasing computing power that we have and the large amounts of data that we now collect on individuals. And that includes, in many cases, photographs or other imaging of people in person, either in the real world or photos that are uploaded online. And so we just have those things now on a scale that we've never had before. And um, like many other applications and areas, facial recognition is benefiting in terms of accuracy and abilities from those things, um, but is also, as you say, becoming used in ways that might raise concerns as well. Yes, very true. It's the computing processing speed and the big data that, you know, is uh, that we uh, nations are able to collect in such a large amounts and in such a rapid manner from social data and many other places. That is making a big difference. And also, you know, I'm sure there are uh, many other technological developments that have happened that is uh, helping with the advances in the facial recognition technology. But there has been a widespread effort to always teach machines to recognize human faces for decades. It's not just, you know, very recently that this has happened. So what is the state of emerging facial recognition system from where you see and where do you see that further advances are possible, you know, in the coming future? That's a great question. So as you say, this has been technology in some ways that existed for a long time. We've had state databases of driver's license identification photos, which are of course one of the most comprehensive and most widely used by law enforcement historically to identify 
unknown people from some other camera or surveillance tape or things like that, usually in a criminal or law investigation sense. Um, but what we're seeing now is that the ability to collect people in a lot of different contexts, not just when they come in and stand in a certain place and get their license, um, but as more and more people are posting photos online, as more and more uh, social areas like events and um, uh, sports events or large arenas for concerts, things like that are implementing these systems, we're getting a lot more collection of people's faces in a commercial way. And that increases the database of people that are available um, in a lot more ways that they show up on their, uh, their face shows up. And the more data that is available, the better the systems can be trained and, and will be. Um, so that's part of what has um, advanced the system. And then of course, the way that the photos are analyzed now is much different than it was done historically. And I think we're gonna talk more about that in a minute, but the fact that it can create a template from your face, it's not really just looking at the actual photo or image of your face, it's a computerized analysis um, a mathematical breakdown of the features of your face that's then used in an algorithm um, to match against other data that it might have uh, and come out with things. So this is advancing more all the time, both in the applications that it might be used for and in the actual technology of how to collect those images, how to analyze those images and how to match them accurately. No, that's an excellent overview that you gave about that. And you are right that more and more information is coming online. People are so willing to put all that, you know, pictures, no matter where they go, they like to, you know, share that. And that is, you know, very uh, rapidly co collecting and gathering so much data. But not only that, but also there is a large, uh, you know, movement towards installing more these cameras, CCTV cameras everywhere. I mean, so in some nations, as we will, you know, a little bit for after, you know, at some point we will discuss about China, but there are a lot of countries who are so eager and they're expanding rapidly their CCTV camera footage everywhere you see, you know, there are cameras. So that is also helping collect a lot of data. So if we talk today from in, uh, with reference to United States only, how does this facial recognition technology work here in United States? Um, so I think facial technology actually works like the technology and how it's designed and works is pretty much similar, whether we're talking about the US or anywhere else. Uh, the there are various levels of facial recognitions, um, my organization is going to be putting out some information publicly on this to try to provide educational um, understanding of this process, because not every image is identifiable to a unique person, or at least it may not be collected and used in that way. Ultimately, it probably could be. But there are some applications that are just recognizing there's a face, there's someone there. And that might be for photographic sorting or for people counting in a public space to see how pedestrian traffic patterns work. Or there's a lot of different reasons that people um, or, or systems might want to count people without really being concerned about who the individual people are. And so it just recognizes that's a face as opposed to something else that's not a face. There are also facial characterization systems that might be used, for example, in a retail environment or for some security level issues, maybe in a casino or something like that, or an amusement park, something that's a large public area where they're watching to see, are people happy? Are they sad? Are they moving quickly? Are they moving slowly? And they can identify a lot from the person's behavior and facial, um, 
you know, uh, expression without necessarily needing to know who the individual is, but the use of it. And then the, the two more common examples of facial recognition technology that most people tend to think of are verification and identification. And so verification is when you've already been enrolled in a system. So say you work in a building that has a secure um, entrance and exit and only people who work there are allowed in, you, when you became an employee, scanned in your face, you got an ID card, and now every day when you show up, you probably have to present your ID card, but it also may scan you to compare you to the database in their system. And that's called a one-to-one -one system where you're claiming to be who you are and all they're doing is comparing you to that one file and either you match or you don't. And if you don't match, you don't get in the building. They don't go around trying to compare you to other images and see who you really are. And then an identification, which is the broadest context and the one most people probably think of the most, is where you are just being scanned and then compared as an unknown against a large database to try to narrow down who you might be um, if they already have an image that matches your face. And that, of course, would be more of a security um, scan or a law enforcement application, uh, and then also maybe in other contexts in the future moving forward. But the way that works is, again, as I said, the camera takes a, a picture of your face, which is then immediately applied, applied under a computer program that creates a template based on, um, you know, individual data points of your face. Maybe it's the width of your eyes or how long your nose is or something like that. But it's the, the more permanent features of your face. And a lot of that might, in fact, be intellectual property from the company who runs that particular system. Like every company system is going to be a little bit unique in order to, you know, be able to protect the data itself and protect their system. Um, and then that template is put through an algorithm and turned into a basically a number. And then that number is encrypted and stored on a system. And that's really what's stored. And every time you scan and again, it goes through that same process and it has to match that encrypted number for you to actually be cleared. It's not like um, where we might, as a human, look at two photos and say, mm, this person looks like that person. I think that it's probably the same person. Uh, it does it mathematically in a different way to do that verification. Yes, yeah, so it's uh, much better than, you know, human interpretation. And I'm really glad what you talked about that your organization is putting together guidelines about which uh, uh, application, you know, is uh, collecting data or which application, you know, has capability of this uh, facial recognition because uh, there are many counter applications also that, you know, being developed in the process. And what you told about this, you know, the way identification happens, it would be interesting to see how accurate these uh, softwares are facial recognition software because if somebody is wearing glasses or someone has you know some jewelries or tattoos and things like that how accurate it is depending on the tone of the skin or the you know makeup that is being uh, wore or you know any accessories that they have on their face you know how accurately these uh, facial recognition softwares are able to identify and differentiate you know the genuine person uh, or you know if somebody is wearing a mask how it is uh, accurately they're able to define that so it would be interesting to see the accuracy of these softwares you know in different scenarios but when we apply artificial intelligence to create this facial recognition software how is that applied and what kind of tangible results have you seen being reported uh, based on these ai uh, driven facial recognition software? 
Um, yes, that's, that's a great, a great question. question. So, so I'm getting, I'm getting feedback, feedback here. Is that, are you okay, Aaron? No, I'm not hearing echo. Okay, then I'll keep going. Um, what we're really more accurately talking about is machine learning, machine learning processes, which without getting into a big discussion of the difference between algorithms and machine learning and AI and things like that, let's just focus on the fact that this is basically generally machine learning systems that are doing this, uh, which means that you're writing an algorithm that is going to um, take data, run the algorithm, which is essentially a computer program, a set of steps to apply to that data. And then it's going to figure out, did it do it well or did it do it not as well based on the desired outcome? And it can change itself. It can change its own code. It can adapt its own processing without a human's intervention. And that's what's called machine learning. And so these machine learning processes need lots and lots of data in order to get better and better. So for example, many people are familiar with the Google program that learned how to play the game Go and beat the world champion at it. But one of the ways it learned that was that it played hundreds of thousands of games, replayed hundreds of thousands of human games that had been played on a computer that it could follow through and replay in order to learn. So what these systems are doing is taking hundreds of thousands of photos, of pictures, of images, and learning what's a face, what's not a face, um, and then how to detail down a particular face and create a um, mathematical construct of that face that is unique and that won't be confused or identified with another face. So obviously if there are um, identical twins, that could be a problem for the algorithm. Um, early versions of this had a lot of trouble with um, faces that were not uh, in the US at least, that were not Caucasian faces because many, many of the data sets that had been fed through these systems early on were primarily of white faces. And so they were not, the programs, the models had not had enough data through them to accurately identify people of color, um, uh, Oriental, Asian um, features that are more unique. Um, and they were really not very good at that. And that was recognized. And that's one of the things that's now getting better. And in many places, um, you know, the systems are quite as accurate now. But that was that was an early problem because of the way that the training sets had been through, because the machine learning model can only learn based on what it's given. And if it's given a data set, for example, that's mostly men, it's not going to be as good and as accurate at identifying women's faces. And it's going to be, you know, make mistakes, not um, identify that it is a woman or not identify it correctly to the particular woman or whatever the case may be um, in those scenarios. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's like, you know, teaching a child, right? I mean, <laughs> whatever information you give that kid, you know, he's going to learn based on that he or she. And But, you know, I, I, I've heard that, I read somewhere that there are also emerging technologies that can very accurately you know, sense the tone of the skin also now. So uh, there are advances happening that will uh, help the facial recognition technology to be even more accurate. And uh, we won't go into the details on those discussions, but there are advances happening, you know, several different kinds of technologies are emerging that is going to make facial recognition technology even much more accurate than what we have currently. But what types of artificial intelligence applications do you see that are currently used uh, integrated with these facial recognition technologies and how and where especially, you know, they are implemented and who is implementing them. Uh, that is even uh, more important to know that, you know, who 
are these uh, players, uh, whether it's the governments or industries or academia or organizations, who is interested in implementing facial recognition technology? And what impact do you see of these artificial intelligence on these uh, facial recognition technology trends that are happening you know, in implementation across nations? So again, really good questions. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to caveat my answer a little bit with the reminder that I'm a lawyer and not a technical specialist, not a programmer, not a computer scientist. But a lawyer who is so informed. <laughs> and and I try to be informed, but but if I go a little astray on some of the technology, please uh, please excuse me to anyone watching who knows the technology better than I do. Um, but so, for example, I was talking about machine learning. Even within machine learning, there are very distinct types of machine learning. There's something called supervised learning, which is when the uh, program is given pictures of an image and told this is what the image is. So it's a cat or it's a dog or it's whatever. And the system is learned, feed is fed enough images that it's told this is a dog, but it learns how to identify a dog. Um, and so as it's being given faces of humans, of individuals, um, that might be one of the, the training uh, scenarios. But because of a lot of things, the technology re requirements, as well as the real world needs for facial recognition, there might be some what's called unsupervised learning, which is where it's not labeled, it's not given to the model and told this is a, a dog, it's just random images are sent through and the model makes a decision about what it thinks that image is and it's just told yes you're right or no you're wrong and every time it's told you're right then that reinforces whatever it used as its decision maker in determining that that was a dog or not a dog or you know whatever the case might be um, and it gets better and better at identifying unknown data in that case and that's a, a different way of of training systems. Um, and then there's something called reinforcement learning, which is yet another level of, of teaching systems to do it, which I'm not sure, I don't believe is probably being applied in, in facial recognition yet, but I, again, could be wrong about that, um, where you don't actually have to feed it data. It sort of learns on its own what people might look like or what is included in images that it's seeing. So those are all being developed, I think, in some way or another. Um, in AI systems, many of them are being applied to facial recognition systems. And the impact is that it's getting better. It's getting better, it's being able um, to be more affordable, it's being able to be done at scale, you know, in large um, applications more easily. And in answer to the question of who's doing it, I think the really sort of flippish answer is everyone. Um, there's a lot of interest in, in facial recognition technology right now. So there are basically sort of the two main buckets, one of which is law enforcement and national security, and the other which is, you know, commercial applications. And so they have very different goals, very different um, uh, purposes for what they're using the facial recognition technology for, but at the end, it's all still about just collecting images of people and identifying them to some level, either as an individual or um, just clearing that they're not on a particular list or that they're um, where they're supposed to be or something like that. So uh, there are technology companies that specialize just in facial recognition type systems. Then there are also big companies that are more, and, and most of those are probably not known to sort of the average person. Their names might not be as recognizable, but then there are also the big companies 
that of course are either working with those AI and facial recognition companies or doing the technology on their own, you know, that everybody's heard of like Google or Amazon or Facebook or somebody and many others as well that are less public facing or may not have public platforms in the same way. But um, again, there are a lot of companies and a lot of people that are very interested in this technology. Yes, so you're very, very right about it because, as you said, everybody's interested. And because everybody's interested across nations, it seems that the market for this facial recognition technology must be very big. How big is the facial recognition technology market and how powerful do you think it is becoming across nations? Um, I this just off the top of my head, based on common sense, I don't really have any detailed insights into that. But I, I think, as you say, it has to be big. It has to be a big market. All governments are interested in this. Almost all border control programs, um, whether in the U.S. or you know in Europe or Asia or wherever, are implementing some level of facial recognition technology for international flights, um, possibly for other. Uh, border control situations and access. Um, it's uh, being used widely in refugee contexts to help track and identify uh, refugee populations, both for delivering benefits to verify the delivery of benefits, uh, also to try to help match people up with um, families or communities over time um, and, and a lot of other different things. So, and then of course, commercially, you know, there's all kinds of interesting applications, many for security, like I said, in, in arenas or large events or um, facility con access control, but also in retail um, and in marketing um, and in a lot of public spaces where people are interested in finding ways to use facial recognition. Yes, you're right. So it looks like it's very, very broad applications. And, you know, across nations, everybody's trying to make some sort of use uh, of the spatial recognition technology, but it looks like uh, one of the main category that uh, facial recognition technology where it is very effective and people are trying to, uh, especially companies are trying to use it is for the identity authentication. And it seems that in financial sectors, you know, many uh, companies and uh, I think MasterCard also is uh, uh, trying to very use this, you know, and verify online payments through either fingerprinting or facial recognition. But it looks like they are leaning towards facial recognition. Probably, uh, I'm not uh, too sure on that, but I read some reports that you know they are uh, testing this very heavily. So, from your assessment, how effective is this facial recognition-based identity authentication? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, you did uh, talk about it, you know, one on one identity uh, authentication in apartment buildings and all that uh, earlier, you know, in this discussion. But broadly speaking, if we are trying to use it for financial, you know, applications and banking and all that, then it has to be, we have to be 100% sure that it is, you know, this identity authentication is very accurate. So, how effective and accurate it is. So a uh, really important point, and it's important to remember that the systems themselves can be set at different threshold levels for how accurate they have to be before a, a checkmark, a yes is returned or a no is returned in the scan, 
based on what is the purpose and what is the use. So one of the most common ways that we're all seeing now for facial recognition is just in device access. So if you have the new iPhone 10, or I believe some of the new uh, Android phones, you know, now have the, you just hold it up and look into it. And it's just like your fingerprint has been for several years now, gives you access to your device. Um, a program like that can be set at a slightly lesser threshold because the chances of somebody looking so similar to you and getting hold of your phone to do that are, are a little bit less. And also the risk of what will happen if they get access to your phone, while certainly very important to you and I, um, is not necessarily the most risky thing in the world. So, so that can be set at a level to make it easy and fast for the user, as opposed to the most stringent, where you'd have to hold it at just the right angle with a certain amount of light and get it you know, the right distance in order for it to give you the clearance that yes, it's really you. Um, and that's exactly the same way that the fingerprint technology works on those. It's a different type of fingerprint cap, sorry, fingerprint capture than, for example, the, the law enforcement process where you ink your fingers and then those get scanned in or, or any equivalent thereof. Um, it's an entirely different way of identifying points on your finger via those templates and algorithms that I talked about earlier. So um, in the case of banking, which you brought up, obviously they're going to want to set that threshold a little tighter to be very sure that you're the person that you say you are. But again, if you are on the device that you have enrolled in that program, they can verify that th that is the device that's seeking access to the login. And then your biometric, whether it's your fingerprint or your face, becomes a secondary validation of that. And because it's checking one-on-one -on -one against an existing file, it can be really, really accurate and really, really specific um, to, a, to a pretty high level of confidence as compared to if you just collected a person off the street and threw it up against some database wherever you might have gotten that from and tried to identify who that person was. It might give you a bunch of results, like here's like 15 people that it kind of looks like, and maybe the confidence levels are 60 or 70 or even 80%. But in your device, usually that algorithm is stored on the device itself. It's not going through a cloud server or a central uh, location. And so all it's going to do is pull up what was entered on that phone, verify when you retry to access it. And this is the, the same way that like your banking app would do it on your phone. Um, those are really accurate. Those are very, very reliable. Yes. I mean, so it seems from the data that we are you know witnessing, but I also feel that because the advances in this facial recognition technology are, I mean, it seems that they are very effective and they are very going in the right direction. But because it's a facial recognition technology and the head is also right there and the brain is also right there and the brain waves are also right there, if we integrate the brain waves with this facial recognition technology and AI, I think it would be foolproof. There, is, there will nobody will be able to uh, hack it, or nobody will be able to uh, create any fraud. You know, using that because each individual, each human being has you know very unique brain waves which cannot be copied. So if we integrate brain wave with this you know technology, that is going to be hundred percent accurate for uh, identity authentication. But that would be uh, that is just uh, off topic discussion. <laughs> yeah. Is, it just it looks like you know because it, there are many biometric technologies i mean you can use fingerprinting you can use the retina scan many of them but uh, 
to they all have a possibility of you know having some sort of you know fraud or some sort of manipulation can is possible but brain waves integrated with the facial recognition technology could be very very accurate but having said that it seems that you know there are many uses uh, applications being developed and many many insights are emerging from this facial recognition technology that is being used and one of that is very very uh, disturbing in the sense that it has great applications but it it can also what it can reveal is can be misused uh, to so many at such a level because it seems that the links between human face and psychology exist and uh, i mean it's not visible to any human eye or any any person but there has been so much research done at stanford and you know at so many different places where the advances in machine learning because because of these advances in machine learning they this uh, you know scientists are accurately able to even detect the psychological traits like who is going to be what like is he a conservative is he a liberal is he a you know criminal is he going to be you know what kind of sexual preferences a person would have all kinds of you know data can be accurately identified so this how do you think this facial recognition technology being used to detect psychological traits how will that play out in the coming years uh, uh, i think that's I think a great question. question that's a great area of concern to a lot of people in civil, civil rights, rights areas and yeah. human rights uh, you know defense across the country or across the world um, and things like that i have to say that right now the science behind those is very um, early and, and for lack of a better word, very inaccurate. Um, for example, the Stanford study that you mentioned, I think has since been highly questioned and there's been a lot of concern about attempting to assert that simply based on facial characteristics, we can determine someone's sexuality or their political leanings. I, I don't disagree with you that that time may come, that that we are learning that so much of those kinds of things has a genetic component. Some of that could be reflected in, if not our face, our physical behavior. Um, there's a lot of things that we might discover moving forward can be scientifically assessed and told from um, a passive collection of data from either our face or our body. As you said, even brain waves might eventually be part of that collection. But at this time, um, I think we need to be very, very careful because I think that science is not yet at that sort of accuracy or level where it can have any kind of reliability. And even if it was accurate, that would be con incredibly concerning to make available and use in almost any context. And I, I think we can all um, see very bad use cases of that. For example, if someone is, is in a country that doesn't um, have a high tolerance for certain behaviors or sexual proclivities or things like that, and wants to use that kind of technology, um, it's particularly dangerous when the science isn't even good and is not even reliable, which I, I really believe it's not at this point. So. So it's a really good and important question. And I think in the future, it is certainly possible that we will learn more about those things. But I think right now, what we need to be doing is saying no one should be using it in those ways, because the science is just not there. And even if it were, we need to have a lot of thoughtful review on how we use that kind of information. I mean, right now, there's people who don't even want us using facial recognition technology 
even at the level it is now, where it just literally sort of identifies a person based on their face without any additional information about them, um, their beliefs or behaviors or anything. But uh, to say that that it could do more than that would be really concerning. It is. It is a cause of great concern, and we have to be very cautious. On uh, science will give us ability to do many things, to you know, see many insights that we would want to. But do we want to go on those paths? Because it is a dual use. I mean, everything has a dual use, right? So in these technologies, it can be used for good, can be used for bad, and we have to be very careful because the tolerance level, like you said across you know many nations is uh, not very at the same level so that is where we have to be very very careful so uh, developing technology is one thing we can develop all kinds of technologies but unless and until they are accepted by everyone the technology is accepted by masses there is no you know greater benefits coming from it so how is facial recognition technology accepted across nations and how widespread is the adoption of this facial recognition technology across all different uh, components of a nation. That means governments, industries, organizations, and academia from your assessment. Yeah, I, I think it would take um, a long time to answer that question really completely. I think the short answer is there's an entire spectrum of positions on how accepted facial recognition technology is. I think most countries from a governmental sense are embracing it at least to the extent of um, you know national security, anti-terrorism, border control types of applications. Uh, I think the vast majority of of countries today use it in some some sort of biometric and probably some level of facial recognition technology in those contexts, and they do it with a great deal of support because of its ability in in many people's minds to make faster and more accurate. Uh, assessments of threats to individual countries. And so at that level and in that conversation, I think it's very widely accepted. But um, there is a lot of pushback from other parts of society within those countries or, or within international organizations in some cases about is it being done in a way that is respectful of human rights? Um, is it accurate enough to really rely on it for those things? Are we allowing too many um, potentially innocent people to be caught up uh, inaccurately or unfairly in something. And even if it's accurate, what is that doing to our sense of citizenship and independence and, and liberty to say that our face is being tracked in that way, both across borders and in public spaces by governments? As you said, there are not just China, um, which I think we're going to talk more about, but uh, there are many cities in the world that have very high levels of saturation of cameras, public cameras, and can follow, you know, individuals around in those public spaces pretty easily and go back and track someone. So, so it's accepted in the sense that it's being implemented and used because there's a lot of people in government who are comfortable with the trade-off that it gives them the security they're looking for. Um, and, and they're willing to, to use it for that purpose. But then there are other organizations who are concerned about what the trade-offs might be and are we really okay with that um, socially for it to be used in those ways. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because yeah, governments would love to have those cameras because it would 
give them much more power, you know, to control their citizens. But uh, is that uh, where we should be going? That's a bigger question. You know, we need to be very careful in how much, uh, how many cameras we should be, uh, any nation or its governments at any level, local, national, global. I mean, uh, how many cameras should be allowed or how much of this surveillance should be allowed? That's a bigger question because, uh, you know, there are many it's not just that you are trying to do this for security purpose or you know surveillance there is a lot more data as we just talked before that can you know emerge from this uh, facial recognition and uh, we don't know the people who are uh, using this technology irrespective of whether it's governments or you know institutions or any organizations for what purpose what kind of insights they are you know getting based on this uh, identification and machine learning and artificial learning so that's where the bigger challenges are so the, the complex challenges are there and you know i'm not sure if all the nations are going to get together and be on the same page and come to you know regulations uh, to define how this should be used and as we see countries like china are uh, using it you know in a very heavily uh, you know they are going aggressively towards this so with artificial intelligence high speed we know that high speed facial recognition is here uh, within a in real time also they can you know identify the individual so how is this facial recognition technology changing not only just the nations but overall human society and more importantly is that do the common man the common citizens do they understand the scale of change is coming their way because uh, people won't even notice that there are cameras everywhere and that you know people when they put the pictures online they won't even realize that the pictures they are putting online that what it could be used for so do is there a proper understanding education and awareness about all this Absolutely. I, I think that's the very heart of the problem is, um, and, and it's a it's a concern sort of in both directions. If, if the people, general population does understand that there are cameras and that they're being surveilled, um, do they then, you know, modify their behavior based on that? So for example, um, you know, we see a lot of, of protest marches in this country and other countries um, against a government policy or against um, a war or against, you know, anything that, that they want or, or marching in favor of some particular cause. Um, and so that kind of scenario gives uh, the government, whether it's a city or a national government, sort of um, the context that they can use facial recognition because they want to provide security. They want to make sure that with that many people in a, a compact location that, that things don't get out of hand, that, that security forces are able to, to manage things. And so they may use facial recognition with that as the sort of excuse. And, and it's not an excuse, that's a legitimate purpose. But at the same time, they're literally just collecting all that data on the people present. What are they gonna do with it then if, if it's not needed for security purposes or once the security purposes have been served, what are they doing with all that data? Are they keeping a database of all of these people came to this march and here's all the subset of people who've come to several marches? And does that then tie into other data or files that either the government or other um, organizations might have on those individuals? And how is that being used? So, so that's a real concern because maybe I decide not to go to a protest, which is a key part of the democratic process in many people's eyes. 
um, because I don't want to be collected on a camera and have a file on me with my face on it. Um, at least not, maybe I think there already is one, but I don't want it tied to that march. I don't want to be identified in that way. So that's changing my behavior and, and impacting my ability to, to interact as a democratic um, citizen in my country. And then the flip side of it is, as you say, what if people just don't know? And then they're literally making these choices and being involved in events or going places or you know living their lives basically not understanding that this data is being collected and um, put together in some way. And that's concerning because, um, you know, they may be uh, unaware of how that data is being connected to other data that's on them. Because at the end of the day, it's not just the face or the surveillance of location, which is really all the face gives you is, is a list of locations. But then if you put that together with other databases on people, they're online, behavior, their shopping behavior, their um, religious activities, their uh, leisure activities, whatever those might be. And, and you start to really have very detailed profiles of people now. And one of the, um, in many ways, easiest ways to continue to track them over time is by this sort of passive collection in public places of their face that then validates, oh, yes, they went to the public swimming pool or they went to the library, they went to church. Um, or they went to a neighbor's house, whatever it was that they did, or they went shopping. And again, correlating with their online activities gives a really comprehensive uh, profile of a person that they may not realize is being collected. Yes, very true. And that is a cause of great concern. And I mean, as we discussed before, that each of these uh, innovations, each of these technologies that are emerging, they all have dual use. And just like artificial intelligence, facial recognition technology is also dual use technology, meaning its implementation can have both positive as well as negative impact depending on how it is used and by whom it is used and where it is used and what kind of insights you know come from there. So how are nations managing the dual use security risk of this facial recognition technology from your assessment? Um, well, I think it's probably early days, specifically to facial recognition technology. Um, obviously, privacy generally, personal information, uh, personally identifiable information generally is a very hot topic right now with the GDPR in Europe just having gone into effect. Um, California in the U.S. just passed a very comprehensive privacy law. So in terms of its impact on U.S. law as a whole, even though it's just one state, it's a pretty important state that impacts a lot of other things. So general privacy concerns overlap with a lot of the things that we're talking about here in terms of, of tracking and surveilling and, and civil rights and things like that. Um, and that's really a hot topic right now. And I think a lot of governments are now starting to grapple with it more directly. A lot of civil society groups, um, civil rights organizations, NGOs, things like that are starting to push back and ask those questions. Academics, of course, are publishing paper after paper on, on the concerns and how those things should be considered and addressed. Um, I don't think that there's really any consensus answer. Um, there are a number of countries who have put out, for example, an AI strategy, which is not particular to facial recognition, but just the fact that they're doing that means they're recognizing that this level of technology, this level of capability and processing that we have now is raising new issues that probably need to be addressed very directly and specifically. Um, like we didn't have a national cell phone or smartphone strategy, um, but a lot of countries have started to put out a national AI strategy because they realize that both from a commercial and economic standpoint, it's important. And then also from a 
governmental citizenship, civil rights aspect, it's important. Uh, we see, I, I think India is always a great country to look at for this particular question because they implemented the ADHAR um, biometric system, which is not based on faces, based on fingerprints, but it's uh, the goal was 100% enrollment in order to have delivery of social services to people in the country, which is a really admirable and, and one of the beneficial uses of biometrics to be able to more efficiently and more accurately identify people to deliver um, all kinds of social, social services to them. But because it was done perhaps without um, the sort of public hearing or public discussion or consensus to get people's willingness and adoption, it was challenged. And then of course the result of that is now the Supreme Court in India has said that in fact, the right to privacy is a fundamental right. And now they're having to sort of go back and scramble and figure out, okay, how do we do this program now in that light, in light of the Supreme Court's ruling? So um, I think it's been great for us to have India to look at as a, as a test case, because so many things have happened and so many good questions have been brought up and have been dealt with. Um, it's got a good democratic process, so we can observe how that process works. But I think it's been hard on India. <laughs> I think that, you know, they're sort of suffering the growing pains of, of that on our behalf in a way. Um, but at least it's bringing that to the forefront forefront in a really real time, practical way that says, here's a system, it's a good system. It has a lot of good uses. Good when I say it's a good system, I mean it's accurate. It's a it's a pretty sophisticated system. It has a lot of beneficial uses that a lot of people want. But here's a lot of concerns. How do we how do we balance this? How do we make that work? Yes, that those are you know challenging challenging questions that India's government and. Uh, the organizations that were involved in this, they will have to answer. And uh, like you said, that it was a great initiative, but it wasn't planned very well. And they did not realize the impact and the obstacles and the challenges that will come and how, whether that will be accepted or not. So yes, they forced the citizens to, you know, give all that data, but then they were not prepared to provide the security of the data. So a lot of, you know, hacking also happened and uh, uh, as the as a result we are seeing where the state of the initiative is but if you talk about the ethics of this facial recognition technology where do you see the nation's decision makers taking a stand on these technologies are they and not only just the governments but the organizations and think tanks and uh, social organizations what is their thought process on the ethics of these facial recognition technologies uh, again i think that's a very open question right now that is in fact a, a question that many organizations and countries nationally in their academia are grappling with. And again, I think in large part, sometimes it's more focused at sort of a general artificial intelligence level. There are a lot of groups and committees and um, all kinds of sub agencies of governments that are trying to figure out what the ethics of artificial intelligence are because it's so complex and it's so complicated and affects labor and employment issues as well as um, you know, individual human rights and things like that. And so facial recognition, I think, to an extent, is a part of that conversation. I don't know that it's really been as broken out directly on its own, but it's very similar questions. And I think that's what people are grappling with right now, or what are the ethics? And what are the ethics for a commercial purpose, for a commercial company to use? Is it okay to actually track and target people with advertising based on what you can learn about them 
um, through their various online activities or their real life activities that can be correlated to that. And again, those are questions that have been thought of for a long time, ever since we've had the internet, pretty much. People have been grappling with what level of tracking and profiling and marketing are acceptable. Um, how much transparency do we need? Uh, the ability of people to know and control where their data is, to opt out of certain systems if they choose to. But as with everything else, artificial intelligence is sort of taking it to the next level and creating a level of data on people that is is unprecedented in scope and scale. And so I think that's why the new ethics um, review is very warranted and companies are doing it individually um, and uh, nonprofit organizations and NGOs are looking at it. Academics, again, are, are very closely looking at this and the governments themselves. Yes, yes, no, very true. And that is so very much needed now in this rapidly changing world. It is these facial recognition databases that are being developed that perhaps defines uh, individual citizens, social mobility and individual citizens, you know, ability to move through the world to cross the geographical boundaries and you know to go anywhere now since individual identification is always tied to the social classification do you think that we are going to be comfortable to let algorithms define and decide our social ranking and privileges because as you see in china that has already started happening Right. We are seeing that in China um, to some degree in, in both a real time and an overtime um, tracking system. Um, are we going to be comfortable with that? I think most people's answer to that would be no. But the question is, how much of it are we comfortable with? Where, where do we draw the line? How much of it are we OK with being used where there are benefits, for example, um, ease of access to airplanes or to um, commercial retail establishments or to your online accounts where you don't want to have to remember a, a gazillion passwords or have a password manager, things like that. And you'd love to just have it be a biometric of some kind to scan you in. Um, but what are you willing to trade off? What are you, what are the concerns about that? Um, so, yeah, I think, I, I think that's the important question is what are the boundaries we're willing to establish? And, you know, as always, different countries may have a different answer to that. Yes. Um, and that's probably okay, but but it's important that that get public understanding and acknowledgement and buy-in on what those choices are going to be. Yes, very true, very true. Now, we, we, uh, you brought up that important uh, uh, case study about India and how their initiative uh, faced the complex challenges and how the Supreme Court, you know, ruled up that, you know, everyone has right to the privacy. But personal privacy is a real issue as facial recognition becomes better and better, irrespective of whether it's India or China or United States or any country. So do you think that the definition and nature of privacy is changing due to this facial recognition technology? Um, yeah, that's a really big question, too. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that have been asking for a while, is the nature of privacy changed or is privacy just gone in in the Internet age generally? You know, are we sort of already behind any kind of antiquated concept of privacy? Uh, and I think the, the best way to answer that is probably, yes, the nature and definition of privacy has changed in the sense that 100 years ago, um, privacy probably meant more about 
things being secret, being unknown, just generally, maybe your family knew, maybe a very select um, friend or, or maybe an institution, your bank or whoever knew certain things about you, your lawyer knew certain things about you. Um, but they were just generally unknown and you could sort of keep them that way. At some point in the modern technology system, even before, but certainly leading up to the internet and since then, the nature of that has certainly had to change in some ways. Now it's more a question of understanding where the information about you is, who's collecting it, and what authority you have over it, what power you have to limit it, what rights you have to understand who's sharing it, prevent it being shared in cases where you don't want it shared, prevent it being sold, um, things like that. So, and, and I think that has fundamentally changed already in the whole context of the privacy discussion for the last 20 years, if not more. But again, the question is, does AI sort of take it again to another level? What, what does transparency mean in a machine learning or AI sense? Um, we actually put out a paper on this last month about um, understanding risk and and trying to figure out how to manage uh, machine learning systems where the math or the process or the algorithm is really beyond the ability to just be transparent. You can't just show us a bunch of code to somebody and say, there, that's what we're doing. First of all, it might be proprietary. Um, secondly, it probably doesn't explain anything that they can understand. So what does it mean to be transparent and what rights should people have to control that data? And those are all really important questions. Um, I think we may get to this more in a minute, but one of the possible solutions to that is more math and more AI, that AI could in fact be a privacy protective um, tool for ways to um, implement your preferences across a number of platforms or devices or companies or retail establishments or anything else by sort of creating your own personal AI interface that when you sign up for something, it all goes through some kind of AI app or filter that knows what your preferences are, knows what choices you're going to make and can alert you to any that might be defaulted differently or that might not offer you the choice that it knows you usually prefer to make. Um, and that it can scan and, and review those on a regular basis. None of us do that. Even the most aware and privacy conscious of us really don't do that. We don't scan all our accounts. We don't review every time they change a policy, privacy policy, even if we bothered to read it the first time. Um, we just can't. It's really just not even practical. And so it's very possible that AI could be um, one of the ways that we manage that. And, and technologically, one of the ways that could improve is um, by doing more things on device or in personal cloud transfers rather than aggregate cl cloud accounts. Um, and so there could be some technological ways to develop things differently in the future to give us more awareness and control over our data and make it easier for individuals to understand where their data is and then to have these tools at their disposal to do security scans and do privacy updates and um, test new platforms and services that are being offered and evaluate whether it's something they want to do without having to be a lawyer or having to take a lot of time to read through a lot of fine print or just trust it because you have to kind of thing. Yes, no, you're absolutely right. Those seems like, you know, are the emerging trends where there will be battle between the privacy uh, filter, you know, algorithm versus uh, with the, you know, facial recognition system algorithm. So uh, there is going to be emerging battle and people who are informed 
they would know and who have the resources, they will know how to protect their privacy. So they will always be at an advantage. But the people who are not informed, they are not, you know, knowledgeable and they don't have that awareness, they uh, and they won't have resources. So their privacies are always uh, going to be a challenge because they would not know how to protect their privacy and they wouldn't more, a lot of them are not even concerned about protecting the privacy so uh, that's where we will see the differentiation between you know uh, people with resources and knowledge uh, having better uh, protection to their privacy versus you know people who don't have that so as concerns over privacy and data security on these social networks grow i mean one way is you just said, and you know, we are talking that uh, one way to disrupt that facial recognition system is by using the privacy filters. But what else can be done for the privacy? Well, I think that we're going to start to see more and more companies making privacy a um, market discriminator, you know, a, a competitive advantage, particularly with the GDPR having passed that has very uh, strict regulations on the use of personal data, um, very clear requirements if their process makes decisions based on an automatic process, any kind of algorithm or AI um, that affects an individual in a you know legal way or in a personal way. Uh, they have to have certain protections. There has to be a right to appeal. They have to be able to opt out of that um, in certain uh, contexts. So I think with that kind of legislation in such a large market and potentially being mirrored or perhaps similar types of legislation in other places, just the whole Supreme Court decision in India that it is a right, there is a fundamental right to privacy is going to affect the behavior, especially on the commercial side. And we're going to start to see companies um, making that part of their marketing, part of their advertising that, look, we're going to provide you these products and services and we're going to do it in a privacy protective way. We're going to um, let you know what we're doing. We're going to protect your data. We're going to do these other things. And I think we see a little bit of that. And, and that's always been the case to some degree. Um, Apple has always made it part of its sort of corporate culture and personality, if you will, to, to the consumer broadly, that privacy is very important to them, that they protect your data protect your data on your phone, um, things like that. And I think we'll see more of that. I, I, I think that will be important because if we are able to express our preference as a consumer for those protections because they're offered by one company and not another, then we can really start to see whether this is something that people value enough that it's going to be offered and followed and um, enforced. Um, and then, of course, on the government side, we have, you know, voting and elections and and other ways to try to influence the process of how facial recognition or AI is used um, by our governments. Yes, very true. And especially if we talk about China, I mean, facial recognition is the new hot topic, you know, in China. I mean, if you look at banks or airports or restaurants, libraries or stores, and even in public toilets, from what I'm reading, is that they are all trying to verify people's identity by analyzing their faces. So, I mean, the police and security state have, it seems that they're very, very eager in embracing this technology. But even uh, the people that are not concerned with security, like uh, why would stores need to, you know, use this or libraries or, you know, public toilets? Why do they need to have this technology? But they are all, you know, embracing this technology. So where is China going? And why is the, do you think that China is building this all-seeing surveillance state? 
Um, yeah, we're getting a little bit outside my area of expertise. So just understand that this is just sort of my own personal opinion um, based on what I read, which is very similar to the things that you're talking about. Um, I think it's useful always to put in context that China and, and other surveillance states, dictatorships, repressive regimes um, have always had the goal to be a dictatorship or repressive regime and have used whatever tools are at their disposal to implement that. So um, the fact that a, a very technologically sophisticated and advanced country like China is now implementing tools to enable it to do those same things more efficiently or more effectively or more thoroughly, um, I think is not really a huge surprise and is part of just the bigger question of where is China going you know, as a culture, as a society, um, and I am no kind of an authority on China to be able to speak to that uh, in terms of what its population might might be willing to tolerate or might want, you know, its government to respond to in terms of, of concerns um, and things like that. So, um, but we definitely are seeing that. And again, it's something that just, just like I said, India was a, a sort of test case for the rest of us to watch in terms of this national ID of a biometric, um, China becomes sort of a test case of, of a different kind where we are maybe able to see some of the things that become the extreme applications that we might have thought, oh, nobody will ever go that far. To put it in a public toilet, nobody's ever going to do that. That's crazy. And yet we're seeing, okay, a regime that really isn't doesn't have to be responsive to elections or voters or, or in some other way. Um, might decide to do that. And so maybe that influences the choices that we make in other countries um, about what we're willing to tolerate. And maybe we're going to be a little bit more conservative in terms of what we're willing to accept from our governments because we are seeing um, a, a more extreme case. Uh, yes, in, also the privacy is a big concern because uh, these are not the places where they should be, government should be going. Uh, as, and, in addition, I mean, we also see that in China, the facial recognition technology is used to shame its citizens. If somebody has not paid their, you know, loan or some, uh, they have not paid their tickets or, you know, they are jaywalking, things like that, you know, that they, they are publicly shamed. Their pictures are put on big screens. So there is absolutely no privacy. No Citizens cannot expect any privacy. So this is a, you're right, this is an extreme case about, you know, privacy in China. China and hopefully nations will learn about, you know from that that how far should uh, they go so as we see you know China's experimentation with this facial recognition technologies what about other nations I mean including United States what, where are they going what are what is your feeling from looking at the test cases, not only China and India, but uh, United States and other countries when it comes to facial recognition technology? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And I think um, what we've seen more of in the United States is we've seen trends for the same kind of public shaming or overreaction or things like that. The difference is we're doing it to ourselves. We're doing it on social media platforms by making videos go viral or, you know, this person was um, un unpleasant to the cashier at a store and which I agree is undesirable behavior. Um, but does that person really need to have that 30 seconds of their life broadcast to a couple million people 
um, in the US and have whatever the repercussions of that might be. So I, again, I think seeing the, the case in China of it being government action is certainly concerning in its own way because of the relationship of, of citizens to their government. But I think it does open the larger question of, you know, maybe we need to self um, moderate our own behavior in some ways as well and develop social norms and things that are um, more acknowledging of, of people's right to be human and right to make mistakes and, and not necessarily um, have not even their worst moment, but just a bad moment of their life publicly um, forever associated with them. And so by the same token, though, it becomes a very powerful tool for, you know, things like police brutality or, um, you know, uh, crime issues or, you know, things where that ability to spread the word quickly and broadly and identify people and hold them accountable is very important. So the, the technology itself um, isn't, isn't the good or the evil. It's just how we choose to use it. And I think, in, as you said, in the United States and in, in other countries which don't have the, the level of government access and use that maybe the Chinese government does, we're still seeing those kind of concerns. And we have people and organizations on, in the United States, in um, you know Western European countries and things like that, that are just as concerned about our government's implementation of those cameras and things like that, even if they're not overtly putting our pictures up on billboards or um, literally tracking us down right when we jaywalked in order to give us a ticket because they could see it in real time. Um, there are still a lot of concerns that they're, they're doing the, the equivalent of that just a little bit less visibly and not quite as in the moment. Um, and so, you know, that, that is a, a real thing. Yes, very true. That is a real thing. And it looks like that each of all nations will have to come together and come up with some effective guidelines. Uh, so do you think we have any effective guidelines for the use of this face recognition technology? Um, well, I... Um, don't want to overstate what we're going to be able to contribute. But like I said, we're going to actually put out some, some uh, facial recognition best practices for commercial applications. This won't have anything to do with law enforcement or national security um, the first week of September. And I think other organizations, trade organizations, uh, trade associations, uh, business conglomerates, um, individual companies that have huge public influence, the big tech companies and things like that, um, all of them have the chance to set the example on this and come up with guidelines. So Google, for example, um, came recently and made very public statements that they would not allow their AI technology to be used, their machine learning technology to be used for weapons, for any kind of machine where the machine could make the decision to use lethal force or to be a weapon um, in, in any kind of environment. And so to have a company take that kind of public statement and other companies to sign on um, to principles like that is, is going to be really important. So, you know, Microsoft CEO came out recently and said that he would be very willing to have um, our federal government, Congress, consider what the right rules around facial recognition technology might be, um, set up a commission or have some kind of conversation to figure out what that is and then come up with legislation or regulations of some kind that would be the guiding um, boundaries for that. And so again, to have a major tech company like Microsoft say that that's the right answer, um, I think will have a lot of influence. Whether that exact process happens or not, of course, I don't know, but 
um, it's certainly going to influence people to think about these things differently and hopefully be involved in the processes to make those choices. Yes, absolutely. That is definitely a good start. Now, I mean, each of these emerging technology, irrespective of whether it's artificial intelligence or blockchain or uh, uh, synthetic biology, the CRISPR technology or the facial recognition technology, all of them needs to be regulated. So how do you think uh, is facial te recognition technology regulated and how should it be regulated? That's a bigger question. And what is the nature of regulation that you see coming from across nations? Well, it's certainly possible that we will see regulation directly at facial recognition technology and systems. That's that's certainly always a possibility. I think at the moment, it's more generally included in biometric data broadly as a category and just personal data broadly. As I mentioned, the GDPR um, talks about biometric data and how how it will be regulated um, in our in the U.S. Of course, we tend if we don't have federal law, which we don't on most of these. Um, we tend to be led by particular activities in different states and they, whoever acts first sort of sets a baseline and then other people, other states might do more or less or nothing and kind of wait to see is the federal government going to act. So, you know, like I said, California just passed a very comprehensive privacy act and we're going to see how that influences both business behavior, consumer interests and things like that. Um, Illinois has a, um, one of the only active biometric laws in the country. Um, and I say active in the sense that it has a private right of action. So an individual can file a suit against a company, a commercial company, if they feel that they've broken that particular law in terms of their use of the individual, the user's biometric data. And there are a number of cases winding their way through the courts in Illinois right now. And there's a lot of people in a lot of states waiting to see what the courts are going to rule on some of those questions to figure out exactly these questions. Um, if, if you're a user of a system and you tag people in a photo, um, does the platform that you're tagging them on have any sort of rights to knowing that that face is that person if that person's not a user of the system? Um, can you use it to you know, sort your photos and do other things with, but maybe not sell it? You know, The company itself maybe can't profile or, or market, um, but those are all unknowns right now in terms of how the nuances are going to be interpreted. And I think that we're going to start to see, and in other countries have similar um, either laws or cases ongoing about biometrics generally. And we're going to see, I think, more and more decisions and regulations being issued, uh, the European Commission perhaps um, providing some additional guidance uh, and in other countries as well that will help us start moving that ball forward. Yeah, that would be really good to see, you know, what is emerging from all those uh, uh, developments happening from across nations. So, Brenda, what would you like to tell our uh, global viewers and listeners, and especially those young, curious minds who wants to get involved in the AI and facial recognition technology, what would you like to tell them about the future of facial recognition? Oh, well, um, I think it's exciting. I, I think that there are a lot of benefits from biometric technologies, including facial re recognition technology. Um, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. It's not going to stop being a, a technology that's out there being used in some form or fashion. So um, AI generally, machine learning, all of that, I think, is, is the basis for um, a lot of both commercial and government and personal services, markets moving forward. So if any of those things are of interest, I think people should definitely pursue them and be interested in them because um, there are all kinds of interesting questions and you can you can 
be interested in machine learning or facial recognition and have it be really particular to a field. Like you don't sort of have to feel like you're just a computer programmer or that a mathematician and that's the only way forward. Um, you know, perhaps you're interested in automated um, autonomous cars and you wanna be involved in the development of those. That's all based on artificial intelligence and there's gonna be a lot of facial recognition technology involved in that. Um, you know, perhaps you're interested in uh, agriculture or some other kind of, of industry like that. There's gonna be a lot of artificial intelligence, machine learning applications underlying those fields. So, so it's gonna cover industries um, of all kinds, entertainment, sports, no matter what it may be, there are gonna be aspects of it that are gonna employ machine learning technology and probably facial recognition. So um, figure out what parts of it are, are interesting and, and follow those. Great advice, Brenda. So thank you so much for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on artificial intelligence power, facial recognition technology, and I'm sure our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the artificial intelligence as well as facial recognition technology and its future, its privacy concerns and uh, emerging regulations and all the guidelines that you and your organizations are working on. So even if a single decision maker can understand the complex facial recognition technology, its applications and impact and understand the growing privacy concerns and regulate Based on the discussion we had today, this discount of dialogue has been of service, and we thank you for that. Thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to talk to you and all of your listeners. Wonderful, Brenda. So Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology convergence and transformation happening across cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that. Risk management, security, and peace, they all walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup webcast or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.